Good afternoon. It's Friday the 2nd of December 2022, uh, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson, and joining me by video link, we've got Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire and Vanessa Bailey. Uh, welcome both to the programme. Uh, we're going to get straight on uh, with the Chuckle Brothers because they are back. Here they are, uh, Professor Witte and uh, Valance. Uh, they've published a new report, uh, which is supposed to be for the future chief medical officers. Uh, to deal with uh, with COVID and so on, uh, but they're talking about a prolonged period of excess death. So we'll come on to what exactly what they say uh, in a second. Uh, but uh, this, of course, is the latest from the Office for National Statistics, and we have uh, another week of excess mortality compared to the five-year average. Um, but uh, you know. Well, it was very interesting looking this this report that uh, Witte and Valence have released was supposedly from the Department of Health and Social Care. So I had a look at uh, the Department for Health and Social Care's Twitter feed to see if I could find the report itself. Uh, no, of course not. I couldn't. Uh, but I was told I needed to get boosted. Uh, I was also told that 22.5 million uh, pounds is going to research into cancer uh, to develop new immune based uh, cancer therapies. This, of course, means mRNA. Uh, and I was also told that the NHS is delivering on its winter plan because, of course, the Tories deliver on everything. Uh, and they've established 40 uh, healthcare traffic control centres, um, and that's uh, dedicated 24 by 7 teams, helping to get patients into beds as quickly as possible. Um, so there's 40 healthcare traffic control centres, pioneering centres which are using data to respond to emergency uh, challenges, uh, emerging challenges, sorry, so no extra beds uh, that's going to deal with data and that's really important. Uh, this move is part of the NHS's wider winter plan as published in October, uh, which also included the rollout of National Falls Response Team Services, new hubs dedicated to serious respiratory infections, uh, and statistics also showed that uh, more than 19 and 20 adult general and acute beds were occupied in the week to 20th of November. Uh, this is what uh, Steve Barclay had to say, the health uh, secretary. Uh, it's absolutely vital we use the latest cutting edge technology and data to ensure the NHS is performing as efficiently and effectively as possible. So Patrick, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, uh, this initially, but it's, it's just staggering to me that, uh, you know, they shut down uh, the, the, or at least they vastly reduced the number of beds in order to uh, make uh, social distancing possible for COVID, to deal with COVID. They're not bringing those beds back, uh, but we're going to focus on making sure that they've got the data necessary in order to produce reports to tell us how long the ambulances are waiting and queues outside hospitals. Yeah, it's, uh, so they're stuck on stupid, uh, basically. They've had all this time to reflect on this, this disaster. It's also the, the conspicuous absence of uh, witty Valance and Matt Hancock uh, from the public view uh, in the last sort of year or so, or a better part of a year. And all of a sudden, they're they're coming back. I think there's maybe an attempt to rehabilitate uh, these people and uh, perhaps to rehabilitate their legacy, which is the total disaster, the unmitigated disaster that's COVID uh, response in the UK. But the, the, the NHS, this is predictable what's happening because they created a problem, which is massive waiting lists, staff shortages, uh, shortages of doctors, qualified doctors uh, in moving to tele, uh, telephone healthcare. So they've created this. So it's data, it's big data and it's remote services. And it's basically uh, treating the NHS uh, not unlike big agriculture. 
So there's is there's basically the way you treat livestock, and I'm not making a sort of uh, uh, crazy flippant uh, <laughs> comparison there. If you look at uh, how things have changed in the NHS uh, in terms of the personal care that's being delivered or doc- access to actual doctors, it is moving in the direction of big agriculture um, in the way that they're administering it. So this is the realm of the technocrats. It's all about big data, and they'll be with their PowerPoint presentations and new ways to move people through the system or seem to be, but nobody's actually getting any actual health care, not of any high quality anyway. But it's a victory for the government because it's all about boasting, lowering waiting times and uh, the increasing efficiency and all of this stuff, but nothing about the actual quality of the health care that the individual is getting. Uh, indeed. Um, so if uh, the report from uh, Witty and Valance wasn't on the uh, the Department of Health's Twitter feed. Maybe it was on their website. Uh, so let's have a quick look there. Uh, well, in fact, uh, no, it's not there either. Uh, maybe it's on the coronavirus COVID-19 page. Well, no, it's not there either. Uh, so how about the public health page? It's not there either. Uh, eventually tracked it down on the Chief Medical Officer's annual reports page, which is buried uh, in, on the government website. Uh, very hard to find. So let's just have a look and see what this technical report on the COVID-19 pandemic in the UK had to say about uh, the excess mortality issue. Uh, and here it is. Healthcare professionals, says Chris Whitty uh, and co, uh, were working in highly pressured environments with potential significant exposure to transmission risk for a novel and largely unknown pathogen. So as Patrick has said, they are doubling down on this uh, narrative as they try to rehabilitate themselves. Uh, Morale across the workforce was understandably closely linked to the overall direction of the pandemic and the broader public mood. But hold on a second. What drove the broader public mood? Well, in fact, it was witty Valance, uh, the likes of Spy B and the Sage uh, team. So he can't blame the broader public mood for what happened in the NHS when it was him uh, that set that. Uh, He goes on. Uh, There was a need to balance the need for surge and service adjustment to meet pandemic needs uh, with maintaining an appropriate level of care and support for other health needs. But of course, they didn't do that because the first thing they did was remove half the beds. Uh, I don't mean that literally, uh, some quantity of beds because they needed to distance people from each other in wards. Uh, We never actually discovered how many beds were removed over that period of time. Uh, Shifting to remote consultations, Patrick already mentioned that, and Debbie, of course, has been mentioning that for weeks, but he he goes on. Shifting to remote consultations, discouraging unnecessary health setting presentations, and asking that those with specific symptoms avoid healthcare settings unless necessary has been an effective way to reduce potential transmission risks and additional burden during a time of significant pressure. Additionally, advice discouraging presentation and healthcare settings when people had certain symptoms needed to include caveats and routes for appropriate triage where these symptoms were not highly specific. But of course, that didn't happen either. Communications to discourage unnecessary visits to healthcare settings therefore needed to be continually adapted. Well, he may argue that he continually adapted his uh, communications on this in this regard, but in fact, in practice, did people hear that, uh, the, the subtlety of that? Well, I don't think they did. He, he goes on here, there's little doubt that delays in presentation, reductions in secretary prevention, uh, postponement of elective and semi-elective care and screening will have led to later and more severe presentation of non-COVID illness, both during and after the first three waves. 
uh, and he goes on, the combined effect of this will likely lead to a prolonged period of non-COVID excess mortality and morbidity uh, after the worst of the pandemic is over. So uh, Patrick, let's have a guess uh, how many times uh, Chris Whitty mentioned the possibility uh, that some of this excess mortality is related to the vaccine rollout. Uh, I'll, I'll let you guess that first before I, uh, before I, I comment further. That's probably something between um, one and zero percent. I don't know. Well, but, zero uh, indeed, yes. But I mean, go ahead. Yeah. No, um, they're, they're still. You know, they won't. They won't say explicitly that the pandemic is over. There's still a lot of people are referring to it. Certainly in the United States, they're they're clinging to it. The Biden administration will not admit that there's a pandemic that's over. They're just clinging to it. So we're in the latter stages of the pandemic. This kind of protracted end of the pandemic this this has gone on now for like a year or two years now so how long is it? it's definitely going to stretch through this winter not we're not at the end yet we're still in the the pandemic so all the emergency use authorization this is basically a stay of execution for the kind of emergency authorization of the experimental mrna gene jabs that's all this is because nobody wants to face the music much less uh chris witty or or valance the chuckle brothers they don't want to face the beast that they've created and this sort of uh, potential tort uh, tsunami coming in terms of lawsuits uh, against the pharmaceutical companies, public health agencies, and so forth. All these people that are pushing and mandating uh, this experimental pharmaceutical product. So I, I think that has a lot to do with it. So I, just the language it, it says it all, Mike. Uh, what you just put there shows that the, they're still kind of drifting it uh, on through the winter of 2022-2023. And then what? Uh, have to wait for another crisis to bury the last one? I don't know. Yeah, well, indeed. Uh, well, look, we'll come, come back on to the, uh, the end of the so-called end of the pandemic later on in the program. Uh, but if we've got excess mortality in the UK uh, being caused by health uh, care issues, uh, there's certainly mortality uh, building in Canada. Now, we talked about this uh, briefly uh, on last week's extra and last Friday's extra. But Vanessa, we want to go into this in a little bit more detail. Yeah, um, pretty horrifying. I mean, a number of independent media have picked it up and um, approached it from different angles. This is um, a blog post from um, a, a blogger called thebridgehead.ca.canada. Canada's new euthanasia law threatens your loved ones who suffer from mental illness. Now, this was back in March 2021. If we have a look at the content of the blog, Mike. Um, so from the blog itself, experts have been predicting a pandemic of mental illness stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic and the government response to it. So surprise, surprise. Um, there are uh, mental issues as a result of uh, the extreme measures taken by the UK government, for example, and of course the Canadian government, which was one of the most draconian. Um, now, again, as part of the blog, never before has Canada offered suicide rather than prevention. This is very important here. Canada is this entire what I would describe as a sort of transhumanism, which is rebranded eugenicism program is being put through by the majority of the five eyes countries, but Canada is leading the way. 
Bill C-7 was introduced last February, so that was at the same time as uh, COVID-19 broke out, so February 2020, after the Quebec Superior Court's Truchon decision struck down the 2000, sorry, the 2015 law's requirement that someone's death be reasonably foreseeable before they became eligible for assisted suicide. Unsurprisingly, the Trudeau Liberals didn't bother to appeal the decision and instead passed Bill C-7 in December 2020. The Senate amended the legislation to allow those with mental illness, and we also have to ask who, who um, asserts that somebody is eligible for the mental illness fast track towards um, medically assisted uh, assistance in dying, which is MAID, that's the Canadian uh, program, and has no other disease or condition eligibility for assisted suicide. In other words, you can be eligible for assisted suicide simply if you are suicidal. So rather than offering prevention, they are offered suicide back to that point. Bill C-7 removed the requirement in the law that a person's natural death be reasonably foreseeable in order to qualify for assisted death. Therefore, people who are not terminally ill could die by euthanasia. The Truchon decision only required this amendment to the law, but Bill C-7 goes further. Um, I recommend going to this particular blog to get further information, but it also includes the fact that the 10-day uh, waiting period for those with foreseeably fatal um, illnesses has been waived and the fact that doctors and nurses can lethally inject a person incapable of consenting. Just let that sink in a minute. So medically assisted suicides in Canada, you can see there a clear uh, increase leading up to 2021. So um, if you look at from 2020, which is when the whole COVID project kicked off to 2021, there's a clear uh, and, and quite dramatic uh, increase, but even from 2016, obviously, when the bill was introduced. Um, moving on, Mike. Um, so I recommend reading this article. There's a lot of interesting information in it, considering it's a mainstream article. <clears throat> Federal Minister uh, Carla Qualtrough, Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, said that she's shocked by the suggestion of assisted deaths for some babies. Let's have a look at what she means by that. So basically, I find that completely shocking and unacceptable that infants less than a year old should have access to medically assisted deaths if they are unlikely to survive and are dealing with severe health issues. The idea was raised earlier this month at a parliamentary committee hearing reviewing the federal law that governs medical assistance in dying. Dr. Louis Roy of Quebec's College of Physicians said his group believes assisted death could be offered to babies up to one year old with severe deformities and very serious syndromes for which the chances of survival are virtually nil and which will cause so much pain that a decision must be made not to allow the child to suffer. Now, Mike, one issue that I wanted to raise here, how much of um, the diseases that are going to be upcoming in the future or even defects using their kind of terminology are related to vaccines? 
either to um, the mother or to young children. That has to be a question which they are not raising, but which we need to raise, bearing in mind the correlation between this act um, and the COVID project, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Go on ahead. Going on. Um, so uh, this is shocking for me. Qualtrough said it should not be easier to access a medically assisted death than to get a wheelchair, but it is. Again, I, I recommend reading this article. It is really seriously disturbing and, and what the hell is going on in Canada. Okay, moving on. Um, we're coming on here, Mike. You mentioned in, I, th I think it was extra um, last week. This was an opinion piece um, from Maria Zaharova. And, and we've just lost Vanessa's. So as I will remind you that the Third Reich with its Action T4 program was the first. Oh. It's okay. Keep keep going because because uh, we'll uh, bring Zaharova on here. I haven't got yeah. the slide anymore. Yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll read it out while, while we yeah, go here. Okay. So Zakharova said uh, this, if we could put that on screen, please, uh, Stephanie. Uh, Canada legalized physician-assisted suicides in 2016. The number of people who wish to be euthanized was, has been growing annually. In all probability, Canada will reach 50,000 such deaths a year. Uh, I'll remind you that the Third Reich, with its Action T4 program, uh, was the first state to in introduce euthanasia on a mass scale. Apart from racial prejudice, the Nazis proceeded from economic considerations. It was expensive to pay for people requiring treatment. This was a tax burden, according to a document found in the Hartheim uh, Euthanasia Centre in Nazi Germany. 70,273 people were killed under the Tiergarten Strasse 4 programme uh, by September the 1st, 1941. An unknown Nazi clerk noted with chilling pragmatism, considering that these patients could live for another 10 years, this is a saving of 885,439,800 Reichsmark in total. And then she ended by saying, is the motivation of neoliberal Ottawa different from that of the Reich? Judge for yourselves. Yeah, I'm afraid we've lost uh, we've lost Vanessa. So what we'll, what we'll do is uh, while we uh, uh, see if she can reconnect, I'll just run on through this here. Uh, so um, she wanted to highlight this tweet from uh, Ian Miles Chung, uh, Canadian clothes retailer Simons is actually using suicide to market their products. No, this isn't made up. Uh, it's part of a sweeping effort to introduce medically assisted suicide as a treatment for mental illness, PTSD and even children with defects in Canada. So uh, let's just have a quick look at a little piece of promo video uh, that this uh, clothes manufacturer, Simons, uh, pushed out. Last breaths are sacred. When I imagine my final days, I see bubbles. I see the ocean. I see music. Even now, as I seek help to end my life, there is still so much beauty. You just have to be brave enough to see it. So all is beauty, apparently. Uh, so a Canadian retailer exploits, exploits a young artist euthanasia to market its fashions. Uh, and if we just look at the, the content of this, it's saying sometime, uh, sometime after Canada's Thanksgiving Day, 
On the 10th of October, a 37-year-old woman named Jennifer was euthanized. Uh, a few days later, on 24th of October, one of Canada's best-known fashion retailers, Quebec-based uh, La Maison Simon, uh, launched an advertising campaign based on her wish to die. Euthanasia was as performance art is the prerogative of the well-to-do, the well-connected and the privileged. Euthanasia as social injustice will be uh, the lot of the down and outs, the abandoned and the marginalized, says this article. If uh, Simon's really valued uh, community connection and compassion, it would be subsidizing housing and medical care for people like this. Instead, it's exploiting the death of a young artist to burnish its brand as a champion of progressive values. Um, so let's see what comes next. Uh, all is beauty. So this is more from the American conservative uh, covering this. And the quote here is Peter Simons, the CEO, who said the short film discloses the heart of the company's values and was made to help build human connection and encourage people to be moral and to help build the communities we want to live in tomorrow and leave to our children. Everything we admire on this earth today, science and art, technology and inventions, is only the creative product of a few peoples. Uh, this is now a quote from, from uh, Adolf Hitler that uh, Vanessa was uh, wanting to compare with the, the Simons quote. Uh, is only the, pro the creative product of a few peoples and originally perhaps one race on them demands existence of this whole uh, culture if they perish the beauty of this earth will sink into the grave with them. Uh, so uh, then uh, let's see what else we've got here. Uh, then we've got the New York Times, uh, New York City to involuntarily remove mentally ill people from the streets. Uh, Mayor Eric Adams directed the police and emergency medical workers to hospitalize people they deem too mentally ill to care for themselves, even if they pose no threat to each other. So the links between euthanasia and uh, eugenics, Patrick, uh, are there. Um, and what's going on in Canada is taking it really to an extreme. Yeah, the numbers are staggering. Uh, you know, this is, these are industrial scale numbers. Uh, just, I think the last uh, year or so is like 18,000. It'll be projected to be 30,000 such people on this sort, sort of official death pathway in Canada. I think it says a lot about Canadian society. I think it says a lot about the uh, politics in Canada. And if you look at the COVID response, if you look at Justin Trudeau's policies, you know, he's a highly unpopular uh, political leader, has managed to uh, crowbar himself uh, into power once again in, in the last election. But his policies are generally not popular. But you have this kind of supine attitude that a lot of Canadians have in, in, in their way, sort of a stiff upper lip hoping that it's just all going to go away and go back to normal. But the, the main feature, Mike, here is this idea of nihilism. And you see it uh, embedded in the text. There's trying to mainstream this idea um, of, of the kind of certain um, de destruction of death. This is what the climate change narrative feeds into. It's nihilism. If you look at the history of the Weimar Republic and what society was like, what was being, you know, what was the milieu of culture uh, that preceded uh, the Third Reich or the conditions that created the rise of the Third Reich and then the economic depression after uh, World War One, And you have this kind of opulence, you have this progressivism. Um, and one of the outgrowths of that is this attitude of nihilism. And I will argue that that's really what the climate change uh, uh, campaigning is all about. It's about raising the current generation, the Greta Thunberg generation of children, to really believe that their future has been robbed 
um, by the adults and the baby boomers who've destroyed the planet and their future. And therefore, hey, what's the point of having children? This kind of, um, and what's the point of being alive for that matter? But this all started really with in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. These, so these ideas have been uh, groomed and brought along and are now percolating to the point where you have like literally a, a Logan's Run type um, narrative that they're pushing there and doing it with, with all this kind of corporate uh, sheen to it. It's kind of really kind of vulgar um, in a certain way, but they'll say that, no, this is really high progressive thinking. And so big danger here, I think, for society, if this sort of thing becomes seductive or becomes alluring um, to the intelligentsia and they start pushing this. But there will be pushback to this. There will be a visceral reaction as well. So get ready for that. Um, okay. Well, I just want to, Vanessa just wanted to finish this segment off with a, a little clip from Redacted, um, who were talking, because as I said, the connection between euthanasia and uh, uh, eugenics perhaps isn't clear to some people, but let's just have a quick listen to this. Now under the made laws in Canada, Canada's, this is unbelievable part of the story. Canada's pediatric society says it's okay to basically eliminate children, you know, as long as they show signs that they are mature. What so, does that even uh, let mean? Me, let me repeat that. Canada's pediatric society under these made laws basically says, hey, if the, if the child is mature enough, like they're not an adult yet, not 18, but if they're showing signs of maturity, then they can, we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're going to refer to them as mature minors, and they can basically, make the determination to, kill, to, to, to be assisted suicide and, and taken care of. Basically, if they, can, if they can decide their own gender, they can... No, but this is the same. Yeah, yeah, you make a good point. This is the same thing is that yes, children should be able to, yeah, change their bodies, make these decisions, make adult decisions as minors. Oh, you're 12 and you're depressed? Well, here you go. We don't even need to, we don't even need to check with the parents. You're, you're a mature, you're a mature minor. You're 12. <laughs> you seem like you're mature. Do you want a doctor's note to go and, you know, take care of that thing called life? Like that's we what we're we talking these, about uh, here. <laughs> We have the red and blue pill. We have the hormone blocker or the life taker. Which one do you want, red or blue? Yeah. Yeah. Because continuing no to live how you are right now is not an option. Unbelievable. Mature minors. Uh, Vanessa, it looks like you're back. Welcome back. Uh, we, we've, gone through the, we've gone through the material. So just uh, if you've got any closing thoughts on that. No, I mean, I, I presume you showed the fact that obviously Christia Freeland, uh, who's been instrumental in getting this bill through, has connections back to her great-grandfather, um, Michel Chomiak, who um, effectively ran the Krakow News on Ukraine, which promoted um, Nazi programs and Nazi propaganda, including um, the T4 Euthanasia program. And it's also worth noting that uh, he had a close connection to um, PR for uh, Goebbels himself. And Goebbels, in 1941, commissioned a film called Ik Klager An, I Accuse, which was the story of a woman with MS who pleads with her doctor husband to end her life. It was seen by 18 million people. And of course, remembering that at the end of the war, it, it's an estimated 300,000 that were exterminated as part of the euthanasia program, but also not forgetting the forced sterilization program that was running alongside that. 
Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, uh, if uh, if euthanasia and potentially eugenics are all about creating uh, the right kind of human being, uh, I wonder what Elon Musk has been up to. Um, now he has uh, decided to to update everybody on what's going on with his uh, robotics and AI company uh, or human augmentation, we might call it. Uh, and so he held uh, a live stream yesterday where he's basically talking about his latest efforts to uh, interface the human brain with uh, microchips. Uh, and he's saying that he's going to have uh, a chip ready to be implanted in clinical trials uh, within the, sec the next six months. Um, so we have a short clip from that live stream. Let's have a listen to what he was saying yesterday. The, overall, the overarching goal of Neuralink is to create a uh, ultimately a whole brain interface. So uh, a, a, a generalized input-output device that in, in, you know, in the long term literally could interface with uh, every aspect of your brain. And in the short term uh, can, ask, can interface with uh, any given section of, of your brain and, and uh, solve a, tr a tremendous number of things that, that uh, cause debilitating issues for people. So, uh, you know, so our, our long-term is, like, I'll, I mean, I'll talk a little bit about our long-term goal. Uh, it's going to sound a little esoteric, but it's the, it, it was actually the, sort of my, my prime motivation, which was, you know, kind of what, what, what do we do about AI? Like, what do we do about artificial general intelligence uh, if, if we have, Digital superintelligence that's you know just much smarter than any human. How do we mitigate that risk um, at, a, at a species level? How do we mitigate that risk? Um, and then even in a benign scenario, where the AI is uh, very very benevolent, um, then how do we even go along for the go along for the ride? How do we? So Patrick, I, I don't know what you think of that. Um, have you any thoughts on, on what he's just said? Um, on the AI question, um, he's talking about the singularity, a, a sentient artificial intelligence. And I, th I think the, a lot of that debate, that conversation, people who work in AI, top developers in artificial intelligence, whether they're from Hanson Robotics or they're from Google uh, working on the DeepMind project, They'll tell you that we are so far away from the singularity um, as as a sort of sentient AI uh, has actual artificial intelligence. What you have now uh, across all of these applications currently is narrow AI. So this is the ability to execute tasks, but do lots of different tasks based on processing power at a rapid rate. Um, and hence, it gives the appearance of artificial intelligence, but it has artificial competence. This is very different than artificial intelligence is what musk is talking about so a lot of it's pie in the sky a lot of it's just pie in the sky but the problem with the elon musk conversation at least in the alternative media sphere is that there's two concurrent things going on one of them is this debate about um uh, transhumanism and elon musk's role in that and certainly that's a good thing to discuss and debate and flesh out. Then there's the other conversation now that he's taken this sort of vanguard position on free speech, which we'll talk about in a few minutes later in the segment. But these are two separate concurrent conversations going on. And a lot of people have the tendency to, to, to conflate both of them mm -hmm. and then to basically dismiss 
uh, Elon Musk's activities on uh, Twitter, for instance, as an example, or other areas, and then conflate it with this uh, nefarious transhumanist uh, um, uh, agenda. So I think we got to separate these two things because they might not actually be directly connected, although you can say he wants to roll out the one app with the X app and all of this stuff, but still, we actually do need a digital town a square. We need a, a, a space for free speech and discourse. If Twitter becomes more open in that regard, that is a positive thing. Um, and so he could be doing two different things, positive, negative. You have to sort of separate these things and look at them separately um, rather than, because a lot of people just want to write him off as a complete demon. And although some of the work might appear to be demonic, no doubt, uh, we got multiple things going on, which makes it a little bit more complicated. Right. Well, well, we will be talking about that a little bit more in a second. But in the meantime, if we uh, stick with the narrow AI, at least, uh, you know, of course, uh, he is promoting this as uh, in the short term as being some way to deal with uh, with medical issues that people have in terms of uh, Parkinson's disease or or some kind of uh, uh, problems with you know, with limbs or whatever. But in the meantime, of course, one of the main reasons for the pursuit of AI is, or one of the main areas of interest is in the defense industry. Uh, and the UK government uh, continuing on with this, this is the DSTL. Uh, we've hosted a pioneering AI trial to build data sets to improve target recognition. And everywhere we go uh, in the UK at the moment, we have this data set building exercise going on in every government department. And ultimately, it's being plugged into machine learning and AI to some degree. Uh, and of course, alongside this, uh, the UK government, the Ministry of Defence, has its Defence Artificial Intelligence Strategy. Uh, let's just see what uh, Ben Wallace had to say when this was published. Uh, AI has enormous potential to enhance capability, but is, oft is all too often spoken about as a potential threat. AI-enabled uh, systems do indeed pose a threat to our security. Uh, in the hands of our adversaries. So it's only when AI is in the hands of adversaries that it's a problem. But my question, Patrick, is who are the adversaries? Because if we remember what the UK Ministry of Defence position is on adversaries, uh, home is no longer a secure sanctuary because they view the general public as being adversaries. And so my question, uh, Patrick, very briefly is uh, if the UK government and the Ministry of Defence see the general public as being an adversary uh, and they hold the AI, but they see uh, AI in the hands of an adversary as being a risk. Should the public therefore view what the British government uh, using this type of technology as a risk to them? Right. So the public, uh, at least in Britain or, or in the West, in the sort of free democratic West, the conversation about AI, all these boffins will like to sort of project and make that sort of a conversation about foreign power, about the Chinese and what the Russians are going to do if the AI falls into the wrong evil hands of some nefarious foreign dictator. But the real conversation should be a domestic one. It's how your government will apply these technologies in local law enforcement in, in a domestic setting. And if you look at the, the NHS, completely reliant on big data, on narrow AI, on ML, machine learning, and this is how they're going to administer national health care, and the police are moving in that direction. Last week, we talked about the autonomous uh, robots uh, in San Francisco being uh, shoot to kill 
uh, being given legal license for that. That passed this week, by the way. Um, so they will be moving forward with that particular uh, program, and they do have license to kill uh, in certain circumstances. So, but so the conversation should be a domestic conversation and not one about foreign. So I think it's a the media will always project internationally on this against China and Russia, for instance, and not really want to talk about how these are being applied to treat people like cattle at home and how it becomes more inhuman, more uh, impersonal, more sort of machine-based law enforcement and people management at home. That's the hallmarks of a technocracy. That's And that's the conversation we need to have right now. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, if uh, you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to join us and you'd be very welcome as a member of the UK column community or you could pick up something from the UK column shop. Uh, but please do share uh, everything that we produce that you find on the various platforms. Uh, now, Patrick, let's uh, move on to elections and uh, Bulgarians protesting the reinstatement of paper election ballots. Could it be that some people aren't liking uh, the electronic voting machines and uh, uh, the, uh, the perhaps the machine learning that goes with that? I don't know. Well, no, this is actually a really bizarre way to kick this conversation off here. No, they're protesting the reinstatement of paper ballots um, in favor of machines. So this is a bizarre sort of development in Bulgaria. And the, the party's called We Continue to Change. This is what the party's called in supposedly a kind of demi democratic anti-corruption type outfit um, in Bulgaria. And they're protesting um, the, the switch to uh, the old establishment, i.e. they're saying paper ballots are corrupt. We need electronic voting. So this is bizarre. And I'll bet you, I, I, I tried to look for the funding of this party, but it's very difficult to see if there's any funding from the National Endowment for Democracy or the Open Society, uh, one of George Soros's umbrella uh, organizations. But here they're saying that today is the day when the democratic vote of every Bulgarian citizen will be substituted the day when we open the door to 15% invalid ballots uh, when, we, when the distortion of the vote makes the whole system work corruptly to the event. So they're wanting to bring people out in droves and thousands in this case to protest paper ballots. So this is sort of the opposite of the conversation we thought we were having. So I don't know what you make of that, but that's, that's a new twist. And I personally think there's probably some of the usual suspects that would be backing this type of an effort. Uh, yes, indeed. I mean, I, I don't know, but, but it sounds like it. It sounds highly unlikely that, uh, uh, this is anything other than uh, foreign-influenced uh, so-called grassroots movement uh, pushing uh, for, for something that the foreign influence particularly wants, which is the return of uh, electronic voting machines. And a lot of people don't realize, Mike, is that uh, electronic voting was pioneered internationally by U.S. companies like Diabolt and all these different election systems companies. They did it internationally. South America and Sarah were the sort of uh, testing ground for that in the 90s. So electronic voting came in in a big after the 2000 presidential election that was contested between Bush and Gore. But all of these systems have been pioneered um, in, quote, third world countries in actual countries where the U.S. is, for, for instance, running military coups or running sort of regime change operations right the way through uh, Latin America. And so they've perfected those. And in some cases, in the case of Brazil, Brazil has been under the electronic voting system 
um, for, for a large part uh, since the mid nineties. So, who, so a lot of, there's a joke in Brazil inside joke that, you know, um, Oracle, Oracle decides who wins the Brazilian elections. So this is the database company that runs the back end, that runs the back end to the electronic voting. So a lot of people, we see the front end, which are the machines and maybe the front end software, but who runs the gigantic back end databases? Well, it's usually, there's only a handful of companies that can do that on the, on the planet. One of them is Oracle. That's an American company. So there, there's there's something to learn there and more to discover. So this is a big conversation in America. Carrie Lake, uh, governor candidate in Arizona, she has not conceded yet. So that she's not conceded. And now the pressure's coming on uh, to people in Arizona who are have not certified the election last uh, November 28th. That was the deadline. So a lot of counties are refusing to certify it. And so this is an interesting development here. We go to Just the News. This is John Solomon's uh, website uh, here. It's pretty good political commentary uh, out of Washington. Arizona governor-elect Katie Hobbs, the Democrat. Um, it's a razor-thin race, less than 1%. And it took two weeks to count the votes, three weeks four weeks. I don't even know if they've finished counting them yet. Nobody knows quite for sure. And she, 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 she was in charge of the elections as Secretary of State. Huge protests, huge opposition to all the voting machines going wonky on the morning of the election. And she's the one responsible. She's running for governor. And now she's calling for certify her election or face felony charges. Okay. So this is Mojave County. It's one of the more rural counties supervisors from Mojave County Board said that they were voting to cert- to certify the election under duress, under duress, after being warned by Hobbs and her office that uh, they would be arrested and charged with a felony if they did not certify the election, according to Ron Gould, who is the elections board chairman there. So think about that in terms of uh, authoritarianism. They're saying, you know, you accept the election results or else. And so here, just the details of this, November 23rd, a letter uh, from the state elections director, Corey Lorick, and basically saying that uh, the the state's office saying that uh, you must certify um, uh, the of the elect the certification of the election is not discretionary. And they go on. These are the actual details. The only basis for delaying county canvassing is pursuant to this particular passage here um, and if returns from polling a polling place are missing, and that is undisputably not the case here, if Mojave County does not perform their ministerial duty to canvass your election results today, we will have no other choice but to pursue legal action and seek fees and sanctions against the board. So this is so people are in the local counties being threatened by central office by the central party, if you will, if you want to think of it in those terms, uh, for, th- for threat of being, you know, who, what, charged with a felony? What does that entail? Fines, imprisonment. So it, this is the sort of, de- they, the Democrats have been decrying democracy is on the ballot. Democracy is in danger. We're in danger of losing our democracy. Well, what, ex- what exactly do you call this situation? So half the state do not accept the results of this uh, election in Arizona that could well decide the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. And the U.S. Senate will appoint judges on a partisan basis on federal districts right across the country. And those judges will decide whether to hear or to dismiss any challenges 
to any elections. So you see how this all comes together um, in one big system politically um, that's becoming very much weighted uh, on one side in, uh, of the partisan divide on this. So a lot of people are, rightly are very concerned about how things are going. And who knows, this could erupt into a really a much bigger fight if it continues uh, down this, this road. Uh, okay, so let's uh, come back onto the issue of uh, freedom of speech and online safety and so on. But uh, we'll start off here with the Washington Examiner. Uh, and again, we're talking about uh, Elon Musk uh, and Musk saying that Twitter interfered in elections and failed in its public trust. So this is a big admission. So Musk has come out in a tweet. I'll show you the tweet in a second. But basically, thing that feared in the 2020 presidential election. So th th this would have been verboten, certainly not to even talk about this on YouTube or other social media platforms without getting either fact-checked, flagged, or complete, having your post deleted, or even getting your account str struck in with a community guideline strike or, or taken off completely, okay? So this is kind of a big deal in this sense. So this now is out in the open. He's talking about the Hunter Biden laptop story that Twitter suppressed and uh, shut down the New York Post as well, who ran the story as the fourth largest newspaper in the United States. Gosh, if, the, if Putin did that in Russia, um, they'd be crying uh, to the rafters, screaming. Uh, this is a uh, complete violation of democratic international principles. And this is interesting. So the obvious reality is longtime users know is that Twitter has failed in the trust and safety for a very long time and has interfered in elections, important statement there. Twitter 2.0 will be far more effective, transparent, and even-handed. That's what he's saying. It's a tall order to manage speech on this giant platform, certainly. And he vows to make public all of, the, it was calling the Twitter files on free speech suppression, soon will be published on Twitter itself. So he's getting all the internal documents, all the things when Jack Dorsey and co. were running a giant censorship farm, uh, basically a political project. Uh, Twitter was making a loss. There was no or any intention. It didn't seem like any real effort to make it a profitable company. But it was a giant censorship project um, in the for the benefit of one party in the United States. So the public deserves to know what really happened. And he says this is a battle for the future of civilization. If speech is where tyranny is all that lies ahead. Okay, we can all agree with those sentiments. Uh, get on board with that. What, what shape this is actually going to take going forward in terms of there's a lot of pressure from governments on Twitter, European governments, Germany especially, uh, as an example, but certainly the UK is going to weigh in heavy on this and the United States, at least with this administration, uh, somewhat checked by a new Republican. But there's a lot of pressure on these social media companies, lawsuits, and you know they can, they can force them to moderate speech more heavily uh, through the hand of the regulation of government, whether it's in the EU uh, or whether it's in the U.S. or through the hand of the, of the courts um, through lawsuits. And even if they're spurious, there's plenty of money available to, to file lawsuits from all these different sort of more progressive uh, groups that are sort of protecting against hate speech and all the rest of it. So this, this is just going to go on. And it's going to be this is the former head here, one of the former heads of the community safety and trust and integrity or whatever it's called. Trust and safety at Twitter um, is basically now, and there's a whole court now of people saying Twitter is now a cauldron of hate speech because there's new management. And so Musk represents this. And so they're saying, oh, it's not safe. You're doing the rounds on the kind of uh, 
uh, circuit there. Yoa Roth is the name of this person. And so he's doing he's one of these sort of debrief gatekeeping sessions here at one of these high-end conferences, probably in New York or D.C. And his comments are just pretty telling as to what the general attitude is um, at these Silicon Valley companies with these people in these very high gatekeeping positions that, quite frankly, may not be actually qualified um, um, on the things that they are, including in the run-up to actual elections in the United States. But if we have that clip, uh, maybe we can play it. The morning of the Hunter Biden story in the New York Post happens, and it was weird, right? With distance and with, with what we know now, we, we forget some of the weirdness. But do you remember the, the laptop repair guy? Do you remember the uncertainty of the, of the whole story? We didn't know what to believe. We didn't know what was true. There was, there was smoke. And ultimately for me, uh, it didn't reach a place where I was comfortable removing this content from Twitter. Everything about it looked you like a hack not, and leak and smelled like a hack and leak. You did not want to do that. Leak, but it didn't get there for me. So did you just hear that, Mike, at the end? He slipped that in said, this looked like a hack and leak campaign. This was screaming of a hack and leak campaign, like he's some kind of expert on this political phenomenon of hack and leak. They were just basically going along with the same sort of, you know, uh, Julian Assange, or the Russians hacked the DNC, gave the Podesta emails to Assange, he published them, and therefore, and so basically, it's, this person incompetent, these are people in really key positions of moderating speech across a global space. And are they really incompetent? They don't know what they're going on. Or are they lying? Because he's saying, we really didn't know. The New York Post is the fourth largest newspaper, staked their whole reputation on the Hunter Biden laptop story. Clearly, they vetted the story or they wouldn't have run it. Think of the legal implications if it was fake and they ran with it as a lead story in, in, nationwide in the U.S. It was already vetted by the time uh, the Twitter uh, governance board uh, got their teeth into this story. So, I mean, what's he talking about? The uncertainty. So he really, either these people don't understand the information space in which they are uh, self-appointed to moderate, um, or they're uh, lying and they're being completely disingenuous. It has to be one of those two, because you can see right in that interview that he's, he was completely winging it. And it's kind of scary, Mike, that these are the people that are put in charge of these really broad-based speech control programs. And they don't appear to be competent or very straight with, with what they're tasked to be doing. So it's that was a shocking in itself just to, to see the attitude, the blasé attitude uh, on that. Uh, yes, okay. So, but then Musk's free speech agenda dismantles safety work at Twitter, insiders say. Uh, of course, this whole issue of online safety is is the huge talking point of the day. And uh, uh, but you'll need to explain to me how Musk's free speech agenda dismantles that. Well, I, I don't think it does. But what I'm going to show you here is just the barrage of media reports in the last 48 hours. There's like a full court press right across every global mainstream media outlet. So you can see they're setting this up right now this is the post obviously the washington post is going to run stories like this there's tons of them um especially in their technology sector move at this of course the israeli government weighing in saying that 
Twitter is going to become a cauldron of anti-Semitism globally here. The foreign minister uh, basically is saying he's taking a lax attitude towards hate speech, etc. So it's hate speech, hate speech. This is the repeat. And look at this, even in, with India, with sort of divisive uh, uh, Hindu versus Muslim uh, social schism here. Uh, certain parties' in, interest in India are saying that, oh, this is going to open the floodgates for hate speech and extremism India. Obviously, that argument's being waged both ways um, from both sides uh, on different parties on this. So that's just more of the same uh, here. And so that, so this is the problem. And uh, so let's talk about this idea of hate speech. How far can it go? And I don't know if the UK column has covered this in the past when it happened, but Germany, unbeknownst to a lot of people, have been doing what's called the annual sweep. They do an annual sweep. It's kind of a tech offensive against hate speech where the police are deployed en masse um, to raid the homes of Internet users. I, I was not fully aware of this until recently and a little bit closer. And yes, it's an actual thing. So in this case, German police, uh, they're raiding uh, houses and, and seizing uh, devices here. German police search the homes and question suspects as part of an annual nationwide crackdown since 2016 it's been ramped up since then against online uh hate speech here so this uh fesser she's the head of uh, state security uh in germany there and so basically officers investigated three women and six men aged uh 17 to 72 and the allegations against them include incitement uh hatred uh defamation uh and libel here and here's what they're saying. We need to draw clear lines here and get the culprits out of their supposed anonymity. So the German government's really going after uh, anonymous handles. Um, on, so on Twitter, a lot of people sock puppet accounts or people just want to uh, conceal their identity. I, I personally am not, um, I am not against sock puppets myself. Um, I think there's a place for uh, accounts and sort of spoof accounts. I think it creates a more interesting conversation it's annoying when they're trolling you but i i wouldn't want to uh, uh deny people that because i know a lot of people that work in government that are on twitter and using anonymous handles in order to be able to express themselves or people that actually work for apple or google who do that online so there is a place for that i know it's not a perfect system but anyway that's situation. look at this federal police say more than two thousand politically motivated quote crimes are being committed online or recorded each year in Germany, uh, but the actual figure is likely to be higher. This is a mainstream media report, so take it with a pinch of salt, because many illegal postings uh, aren't reported to authorities or take place in closed groups. So they want to go after anonymous accounts. They want to go after private groups. They want to go after encrypted chat, WhatsApp, and they want to be able to police and have back doors uh, to, so for instance, they'll be able to access your iPhone without your password. So they're using the sort of counterterrorism uh, uh, license that governments have now uh, in order to uh, access the back door into your devices. So they don't need your permission to uh, get to access your device. They're just going to go seize it and take it straight up. So the, ba the background of this is interesting, and it, it's really in here in the New York Times. If you go back to September 23rd, this article uh, reveals a lot here. This, will, this article will show you the depth of DM goes. So here's a, one story that's pretty unbelievable. A 15-year-old father 
was accused of violating laws against online hate speech, insults, insults, and misinformation. Uh, he had shared image on Facebook with an inflammatory statement about immigration falsely attributed to a German politician. And the quote, the quote that was misattributed uh, said, just because someone rapes, robs, or is a serious criminal is not a reason for uh, deportation. So that was wrongly attributed to a politician and a police dawn raid on the home of his 51-year-old father. So the police then scoured the home for about 30 minutes, seizing the laptop, tablets as evidence, said prosecutors here. Vigiland, a software developer turned internet hate speech investigator, is in charge of unmasking people behind anonymous in Germany. He hunts for clues about where a person lives, works, uh, and connections to friends and family. So you're being doxxed by the German government. Okay, is this being done in other EU countries? Is this being done in Britain? Is this being done in the U.S. or Canada or Australia and New Zealand? That's the question. So be part of the course in China, right? I mean, you probably would have heard this and wouldn't be surprised if that was done in China. But some people might be surprised if it's being done in their own uh, government, in their own backyard. So after an unknown Twitter user compared COVID restrictions to the Holocaust, uh, he used an online registry of licensed architects to help identify the culprit as a middle-aged woman. So the crime there is comparing COVID restrictions to the Holocaust, which is a, someone's opinion. It, it's a comparison. It's a metaphor. This is now categorized as hate speech by these this new sort of digital Stasi um, in, in Germany here. So M Margaret Booth, former Green Party member, of the German parliament was upset by fake remarks um, that had twisted her support for immigration into an extreme view, which potentially might incite, quote, far-right activists. So that's the justification for the state, for the police moving in heavy um, on, this, on these users, things like this. And the thing they're really concerned about, Mike, is that politicians are being insulted or, quote, harassed. Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting. So it was that post uh, that eventually led to the raid of the 51-year-old's house. Uh, the father, uh, his name was not shared by authorities because uh, of privacy laws, <laughs> funny that, um, is still under investigation. Um, and police will continue to examine his devices. But even if he did not know the comment was uh, attributed or misattributed to Miss Baus was fake, um, he still faces punishment. Because the accused bears the, the risk of spreading a false quote without checking it. So they're saying, the state's saying, if you don't do your due diligence in checking a false quote. So the, all of this is predicated on the assumption that a false quote is not going to threaten a public figure or a politician. That could be single quotes versus double quotes. Uh, it could be a, a misspelling, something like this. So uh, here, several internet speech-related cases are now winding their way through the German legal system. The outcomes have the potential to create a new area of case about what can and cannot be said online, potentially diminishing the role of internet companies, i.e. Twitter, Facebook, Google, as the main arbiters of online speech by moving more to the courts. So you see where this is heading, Mike. 
is there's basically saying if if the uh, if the corporations aren't up to the task, um, then what you know it's interesting that they Google Meta or sorry, it's now called Meta. Meta, Google, and Twitter. Um, they just won a court challenge. I think it was in Germany. It's the Network Enforcement Act, which requires companies to notify government when they detect hate speech. So user data to the government without a legal order. So that was the argument that the so the tech companies won temporary stay of execution in court um, on the fact that they don't want to be compelled to uh, notify governments every time they detect so-called hate speech because uh, the, the court ruled that that would be uh, that would violate and undermine personal rights of people. In other words, just without a legal order, the government could just get this stream of uh, reports and doxing and information on citizens. That was deemed to be uh, a bridge too far by the court, you see. So the, the tech companies are, they want that temporary state, but that's going to create another sort of uh, path for the state saying, well, look, you know, we, we, we're going to have to do this through a giant state bureaucracy and to, want, you know, have the courts packed with the, all these different so-called hate speech cases. Um, so and the, how are those going to be adjudicated? You know, so that you can see that the whole point, Mike, is the state is just frothing at the mouth to move on this issue. And look at what's happening in Germany. It really shows you where we're heading in the future, in my opinion. Uh, right. Well, so some really important points to that, Patrick, as, as we're about to see, because it, it ties in with, with this next section. First of all, we've got Joseph Burrell here, who's effectively the European Commission, the European Union's foreign minister. Uh, he was at the G20 recently. So he's saying, I just returned from two intense days of diplomatic speed dating around the G20 foreign ministers meeting in Indonesia. Uh, one of the advantages of such meetings is that we can meet uh, many uh, colleagues in a short period of time and so on. Uh, but he's talking about the global battle of narratives. And he's particularly talking about the global battle of narratives around the war uh, of aggression against Ukraine. He's saying it's in full swing. Uh, and for now, he says we are not winning. So the European Union is not winning in the global battle for narratives around Ukraine. Uh, we must continue our efforts to convince our partners while equally being sensitive to their needs. Uh, and uh, so uh, th this is a very interesting comment from him. Uh, the EU is ex clearly extremely concerned about that. Uh, and I just wanted to highlight uh, what the EU's position is on Twitter, for example. So. Uh, Twitter will be banned unless it abides by the EU's Digital Services Act. Now, this uh, EU Di Digital Services Act, we've talked about it many times, is the EU's equivalent of the online harm or the online safety bill, uh, and they've managed to get it uh, passed before the UK uh, has passed the online safety bill, despite the fact that the UK started the process of the online safety bill a long time before the uh, EU did with their Digital Services Act. Uh, but they're saying that unless uh, tech companies are willing to uh, abide by the rules, they could be and they will be banned in the EU. Now, we've already seen this to some extent uh, with the issue of, uh, of uh, video hosting companies uh, being banned in France, for example, or at least the French demanding uh, that uh, uh, both Odyssey and, uh, and others uh, being asked to take down uh, or uh, stop RT and other Russian media from using their, their channels. And uh, they, in some cases, they've complied with that. And in some cases, uh, they haven't. Um, 
But uh, if we look at uh, Politico's coverage of this, uh, their headline is uh, WTF is DSA, what Europe's new content moderation laws means for the internet. Uh, and this was the key paragraph that I wanted to highlight in this article. In the event of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, war or pandemic, the commission will be empowered to require big tech firms to quickly adapt their services to deal with potential disinformation. Now, uh, what does that mean, adapt their services? Well, of course, that means censor content. Um, but as well as that, uh, Vanessa, welcome back to the program. Uh, we have this organization, the EDMO uh, network. Uh, they have uh, six EU, uh, sorry, all EU member states through six new hubs. Uh, that's the expansion. Let's just briefly have a look at this. Following the second call for EDMO hubs, the European Commission has selected six new hubs will become part of the European Digital Media Observatory uh, and strengthening the European ecosystem that fights or that works to fight uh, disinformation. Uh, and uh, the European Digital Media Observatory, they say, brings together fact checkers, media literacy experts and academic researchers to understand and analyze disinformation in collaboration with media organizations, online platforms and media literacy practitioners. Uh, they'll deploy a platform to support the work of a multidisciplinary uh, community with expertise in the field of online disinformation. EDMO will contribute to a deeper understanding of disinformation, relevant actors, vectors, tools, methods, dissemination, dynamics, targets, and impact on society. I mean, we must be building a much better society with this type of control of narratives. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? This is just mass censorship uh, ongoing. And it sounds as if from the language used that they're going to be bringing in sort of uh, legal armament against us also. But there was an article published in The Telegraph also yesterday, which is saying, headlined, uh, Britain is sleepwalking walking into censorship and we're running out of time to stop it. Um, claiming that uh, we're entering a censorship system far harsher than anything than the EU or the US is proposing, and that Britain would end up with one of the most draconian regimes in the free world. That's extraordinary. That's coming from uh, the Telegraph. So, you know, the, the, the writing is on the wall that we're heading into um, a censorship matrix which is going to be extremely uh, controlled and uh, policed in the future. And, and the, the, the indication there is also relating back to that, that um, concept of it being terrorism, information terrorism. We will become disinformation terrorists. Remember the uh, US State Department funded meeting in Ukraine a few months ago. Uh, indeed. So, look, I, I really want to reinforce one of the points that I was making uh, on Monday's programme. So this is the BBC with their headline, Online Safety Bill, Plan to Make Big Tech Remove Har Harmful Content Axed. And this is about the fact that uh, uh, Michelle uh, Donnellan has decided to uh, remove the so-called harmful, legal but harmful clause uh, and clauses from the Online Safety Bill. But what has actually happened here, this is just, this is one very small aspect of this bill, which is so massively complex, it's going to affect uh, not only uh, alternative media outlets, it's going to affect anybody that's running an online forum, it's going to affect all kinds of, of people in all kinds of way, ways. But look, here's the key point that I just want to really reiterate. If we look at what was actually said uh, by the government, 
uh, with respect to freedom of speech. They say, as private companies, tech platforms will remain free to set any terms of service that they wish. Uh, that's community standards and so on. We've all come against the issue of community standards on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook, all these kinds of platforms. Uh, the government says the changes mean that companies must keep their promises to users and consistently enforce their user safety policies once and for all. So in other words, the government is calling out these companies by saying that they've been inconsistent in their uh, responses, in their re responses to content that's on their sites. Uh, they've got the terms and conditions in place uh, and they're, they're not being draconian enough in how those terms and conditions are being applied. They've got to be applied in every instance. Uh, it goes on, for example, if a platform says in its terms of service that it does not allow a particular type of legal content such as racist and homophobic abuse or harmful health disinformation, uh, then it must act to tackle it. And if it doesn't act to tackle it, Ofcom will be empowered to take unprecedented action, including levying fines totaling up to 10% of annual turnover. Now, Patrick, very, very briefly, uh, from what you were saying in your segment there, uh, Elon Musk expressing a desire that he that he doesn't have to actually impose this type of of, of uh, uh, draconian uh, censorship, but while the government has removed the or at least has removed its own responsibility for defining what harmful what labeled but harmful content is, they're still requiring the tech companies to define that within their terms and conditions, and they're putting on a statutory basis the requirement to enforce those terms and conditions in every instance. Um, so, you know, we, the, what, what Vanessa has just said from this telegram or, a Telegraph article uh, about Britain sleepwalking into the most draconian censorship regime, uh, this is absolutely hitting the nail on the head. Yeah, so uh, Twitter just basically removed uh, COVID medical misinformation from their terms, so they've updated their terms now. So it's no longer, uh, they're not policing COVID, quote, COVID misinformation. The problem, is, if you in your terms of service, if you're explicit about providing a, quote, safe environment for uh, certain topics or subjects, like, for instance, um, hurtful speech or homophobic, how do you de define homophobic is uh, so, some of the top comedians uh, Dave Chappelle or etc. These people are major public figures. Um, they might have anything within their uh, uh, act that could be construed as quote homophobic. Um, so a number of comedians and pundits and things like that. How do you define that? So the the what Twitter has done here the, under the new management is remove the whole COVID part piece to the terms. So they're no longer responsible or they're not compelled to censor speech that might be quote COVID misinformation. So the, their de the default position now for Twitter is um, as long as it's within the law, as long as it's not incitement um, or doesn't incite violence or lead to or some kind of call for you know d direct something that's breaking the law. In other words, we're back to square one. Or there's already laws on the books. And what's going to happen here is that the, the problem with Silicon Valley and the the regimes at Facebook, Meta. Um, and also YouTube and Twitter, because they're political projects, because their main one of their main thrusts now is to moderate the conversation um, politically. Um, then they're they're not in the normal business mode. In other words, they're not acting uh, like actual uh, businesses 
within a normal uh, free market. In a normal free market with any type of product or service or something you opt into, there will be a clause there that says, use at your own risk. So that should be first and foremost, if the tech companies want to stay within the law and also protect themselves, then for consenting adults using the platform, there should be an implicit understanding that you are using this platform at your own risk. You may encounter uh, opinions or words that you might find offensive, um, but if as long as it's within the law, um, then we're you know we're not going to we're not responsible for censoring it. That would be the adult approach, and maybe Internet 1.0 would have taken that approach. But it's the political, it's the overrides, overriding political project that's the problem here. It's not the tech companies, and it's not quote hate speech. How do you define hate speech? Even groups that advocate against hate speech, they can't even define it. So the tech companies trying to define it, trying to moderate it is the problem. And they can, they can alleviate that problem just by taking a step back and saying, just if it's within the law, it's fair game. And if it's rude and it's offensive and it's threatening, fine, then you can kick it to a moderator and you can have that uh, adjudicated. But otherwise you can't just go willy nilly banning, deplatforming people uh, because their opinions or someone told a joke or some sort of satire, which was what Twitter has been doing now for years yes. and the other platforms. Yeah, okay, thanks for that. No, but of course, uh, as, as we mentioned, the EU is, is effectively gonna be saying to the likes of Twitter, uh, you will impose these rules or you're not gonna be in the EU. So we'll, we'll see how that battle pans out over the, over the next period of time. But coming back to the online safety bill, I just wanted to highlight a couple of the, the new uh, amendments uh, that Michelle Donlan's put in. Um, so she's put in a new clause, uh, which requires Ofcom to publish a report on the impact uh, of on news publisher content and journalistic content of this uh, regulatory framework that they're putting in. So in other words, uh, the uh, online safety bill is gonna re require platforms to, to protect uh, official news publisher content and official journalistic content, only the types of news publishers and journalists that the government approves of. Um, and uh, so there's gonna have to be a report from Ofcom to, to ensure that that protection is properly managed. Uh, and it also allows the Secretary of State to require Ofcom to produce further reports in the future. Another clause which contains offense, uh, uh, exemptions from the offense of false communications, which Patrick was talking about earlier on in Germany. Uh, and this clause ensures that holders of certain licenses are only exempt, exempt if they are acting as authorized by the license. Um, so who are we talking about here? Well, again, recognize news publishers um, or uh, somebody who's holder of a license under the Broadcasting Act uh, or somebody who's a provider of an on-demand program service so long as they're registered with Ofcom and uh, licensed by Ofcom and so long as they are acting uh, as authorized by the license. Um, and then uh, I just wanted to highlight this for laughs. Um, this organization, the Center for Information Resilience, um, and uh, well, we can see the type of information resilience uh, that they are talking about here. Uh, so they work with journalists around the world to expose disinformation and human rights abuses through open source. Uh, here's some of our work, and of course, it's all about Russian soldiers running a cleansing operation in Boca. Uh, everyone, uh, sorry, Russia violence uh, was strategic and so on. Well, who's just joined this information? Well, none other than uh, Nina Jankovic, uh, 
so of course she had served very briefly as the executive director for the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board. Uh, and she is just registered in the United, Se United States as a foreign agent because she has uh, uh, joined this non-profit uh, based organization in the United Kingdom and therefore she's considered as a foreign agent. Uh, so registration documents viewed by Fox News Digital show that Nina Jankovic is now working for the Center for Information Resilience. So there we go. Now let's uh, just come back uh, to the COVID issue very briefly here. Uh, and of course the COVID inquiry is ongoing. It started a few weeks ago. Uh, and they're currently looking uh, for mod module three core participants. And the deadline for core participants there is the 5th of December, uh, 2022 for module three. Uh, it's been set up apparently to examine the UK's response to an impact to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that that report from Chris Whitty that we were highlighting at the, the, at the lead of the, of the program uh, was uh, to feed into this effectively, I believe. But anyway, uh, I just wanted to make the point that over the last couple of weeks, we've seen articles like this in The Telegraph. Uh, COVID inquiry risks whitewash with focus on lockdown advocates, uh, MPs warn. Uh, and so many people now talking about the fact that uh, the COVID inquiry being very careful about who they choose or who they select to be core participants uh, and therefore uh, the narrative being uh, largely controlled. But don't worry because we have a new pandemic coming along uh, the next COVID strain uh, will be more dangerous than Omicron or could be, scientists warn. This is starting to hit the mainstream media, so get your fear uh, tablets uh, down you because you're going to be getting plenty more fear from the media over this winter. Uh, because uh, Omicron, what, what are they calling it? Uh, they're calling it Deltacrons. Uh, scientists have their eye on several Deltacrons, new COVID variants with the potential to attack the lungs like Delta and spread as easily as Omicron. Uh, so there we go. That's what's coming uh, this winter, more fear. And of course, uh, as we started, uh, as we saw from Chris Whitty's report, the effect uh, of the fear back in uh, 2020 and 2021 and the long-term effects of that on uh, health and uh, people's uh, excess mortality and so on is absolutely clear, but they're gonna keep doubling down on this, uh, on this narrative. Look, uh, I want to say thank you very much to Patrick and Vanessa for joining us today. Sorry about the technical problems. Um, we will uh, be back in a few minutes with some extra and hopefully we'll get uh, some more detail on things there. Uh, so anybody on the main live stream can watch that. Otherwise, uh, we will be back 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope everybody has a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye bye.